the free commuter newspaper, MX, has a section called Overheard. Uh, commuters text in conversations they've overheard on trains and they're nearly always funny, of course. Here's some examples. A guy to his friend after eating a, a hamburger meal. Man, I'm so full, my eyes are bigger than my head. Uh, there, are two, there were two women talking about a car accident. I braked hard because the car in front braked hard and the car behind hit me up the back. He got out and said, you had only one brake light. And I replied, well, you saw that one. That's a good point. Uh, and finally, there were two girls overheard discussing the merits of being vegetarian. Eating animals is okay, but taking their food, no, nah, that's just cruel. Uh, I don't know whether you like listening to conversations on trains. I try not to, but I just get distracted. So I try and have earphones or something in my ears. Some of them make you laugh out loud. Some of them you spend the whole time trying to understand what's happening. Other conversations you just want to find out every word. And then there's others you just don't want to hear at all. Today we're looking at a fascinating conversation of Jesus. It's actually the longest recorded conversation in the Bible, which is interesting. And so it's got something important to teach us. In particular, we'll think about how Jesus moves the conversation from ordinary things to things that matter most, from physical to spiritual. And that's really what we need to do, to make the most of the opportunities we have as we talk to our friends, turn conversations onto things that really matter. But more than just how to do something, we want to learn more about the glories of Jesus himself, more about the richness and the satisfaction of life that he offers, the living water of his spirit that satisfies like nothing else. Now, the first thing I want to think about is four good excuses that Jesus didn't use for having this conversation. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm quick to come up with excuses not to talk about Jesus. Well, it's not the right time. They wouldn't be interested. They'll think I'm weird. I won't know what to say next. It might end our friendship. All sorts of reasons. But they're only excuses. Uh, Listen to the four excuses Jesus could have used but didn't. He was tired, hot, hungry and thirsty. That's verse 6. It's the middle of the day, he's been walking for hours, he's tired and thirsty, he stops at Jacob's well, sits down for a rest, he's hungry, he sends the disciples into town to buy lunch. Every excuse to rest, to keep to himself, maybe even to justify doing it for the good of his ministry. Well, I need time out, I need to rest so I can minister to others later. But for Jesus, it's about this woman's timetable. She was ready to talk right then, not later. She was alone and willing to open up about some personal details then, not later. So Jesus grabs the teachable moment and uses it. The second excuse Jesus could have used uh, for not talking was it wasn't socially acceptable for men and women to talk in public. Men talk to men, women to women and so Jesus was risking causing offence or being accused of improper behaviour but he still started the conversation. 
What's the equivalent today? What social conventions could you risk breaking? Talking to people on the train or, or waiting at a bus stop. Don't normally talk to people when you're waiting, do you? Or in a supermarket queue. I like to talk to people in the supermarket queue. Uh, or when you're going up in a lift. That's a, that's a good... Nobody likes to talk in a lift, do they? Stare straight ahead, don't look, either way. Are you willing to break those conventions? The funny thing I find is people are often more than willing to talk if you make a first move and you do it in a friendly, non-threatening way. Well, the third excuse Jesus didn't use was that he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. There was a long history of animosity, of being enemies. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They were a mixed race. They were part Jewish and part everything else. Uh, It was the result of forced intermarriage by the Assyrians hundreds of years before. And so the Jews saw them as second class. And there were religious differences too. A different sized Bible, a different place of worship, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus could have used all that as an excuse. Too many cultural differences, all too hard, but he didn't. Even the woman was surprised that he had spoken to her. Verse 9, he said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How, come, how can you ask me for a drink? And yet it didn't seem to stop her from talking as the conversation continues. I wonder whether you are willing to break the cultural boundaries to open up conversations with people. All sorts of Chinese people everywhere in Asheville, isn't there? Uh, They look very different from those of us with white faces. Uh, Communicating can be hard, can be difficult. Uh, Or what about Muslim women? Uh, We notice them more than Muslim men, I guess. Uh, I wonder if you use their headgear as an excuse to, to keep quiet and not speak to them. Jesus didn't use cultural differences as an excuse and, and we shouldn't either. The fourth excuse Jesus could have used was that the woman had a bad reputation that could harm his. Uh, verse 18 tells us she's been through five husbands and she was living with another one who wasn't her husband which, by the way, says something about even in that culture there being a marriage service of some description that united people formally. Uh, It's probably the reason she was collecting water in the middle of the day and at this out-of-town well. She'd been rejected by the other women of the town, probably pinched their husbands. Everyone else would collect water in the cool of the morning or cool of the evening, hang around and talk perhaps, Uh, but not this woman. The only time she could get water was the hottest part of the day. Seems Jesus was risking his reputation even being seen with her. Probably he should have waited until the disciples returned and there were some eyewitnesses just in case rumours started. But that would have put an end to the conversation. There was no way the woman would open up with an audience like 12 men standing around her. So Jesus made the most of the opportunity he had and he didn't let her reputation be an excuse. So why did he speak up? Uh, We've thought about lots of reasons why he could have kept quiet 
But why did he start the conversation? Well, the phrase I want to concentrate on is there in verse 10. The woman asks Jesus why he's talking to her. And Jesus replies, If you knew. If only you knew what I know. If you, if you just had enough knowledge. You, you don't, but if you did. When I was in London a few years ago, I visited the National Gallery. It's huge, room after room of priceless paintings. But I just pretty much wandered through each room and I hardly stopped to look at the paintings. After a while, they looked pretty similar to the last room. There were some artists I recognised the names of and even some famous paintings I'd seen before. But to be honest, within an hour or so, I was pretty bored. What I needed was someone who knew about art uh, to say to me, you look like you're not enjoying yourself. If only you knew what I know. If you only knew what you were looking at, you would get so much more enjoyment out of your visit. Let me give you a tour. That's what I needed. And it's the same with Jesus. He says, you look like you're not enjoying life. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. If you only knew what I know, you would get so much more enjoyment out of your journey. Let me give you a tour. That's what he says. So why does Jesus talk? Because he knows something she doesn't. He knows life. He knows a rich, full, complete life, life that lasts, life that she's searching for but not finding, life that satisfies her thirst. It's the same reason we should speak to our friends. We shouldn't speak out of guilt or because we want to chalk up another conversion or we want to win an argument or we want to prove we're better than someone but we should do it because we know something that somebody else needs to know. That's it. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned a quote from the Sri Lankan author D.T. Niles. He said, Evangelism was one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's fairly simple really. You have life-giving information that needs to be passed on. So what is it that Jesus knew that this woman needed? Verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Two things, she needed to know the gift of God and Jesus himself, which I guess is really the first thing. She needs to know who Jesus is and what he has come to speak about. A bit further down in verse 25, they they talk about God's promise to send the Christ or the Messiah, God's appointed king. She, She knew that this person was coming, she just didn't know what he would be like or, or when he'd come. And Jesus says, that's me. If only you knew who I am. Why does she need to know Jesus? Uh, because he can give her the gift of God. So, so what's the gift? Well, Jesus says in verse 10, it's living water. Which, let's be honest, doesn't make things a whole lot clearer. So what's living water? Well, they're at a well. Jesus is thirsty. The idea of water is on their minds. She's come to get water. 
And Jesus' way of teaching is to use the physical things around him to point to spiritual things. He does it twice more in this chapter. Down in verse 34, the disciples come back from town with some food and Jesus says that his food is to do his father's will. And then in verse 35, he's looking at the fields of grain and he talks about fields of people who are ripe for harvest. But here they are sitting at a well and Jesus talks about living water. And there's a bit of a double meaning. It's a bit like when we say running water. What does running water mean? Well, it means moving water, doesn't it? It doesn't mean running water. It means flowing water. And that's the same with living water in Greek. Living water is flowing water. When Jesus says living water, he means water that will give you life. The woman thinks... He means running water, water that is not stagnant. And so she says, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living or running water? That's the only water that's around here, brown, still well water. Well, Jesus makes it clear. He has her interest now. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life. Not just life that never ends, but life of the ages. The the life that we were designed for. Ultimate life would be a good way of describing it. The life of God's kingdom. That sounds pretty good. And so the woman says, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She still doesn't really understand. Show me where to find that water that will give me that sort of life. Now at this point Jesus says something that seems a bit funny. He says, verse 16, Go call your husband. She says, well, I've had five husbands and I'm not even married to number six, which Jesus knew. So what is he doing? Is he changing the subject? She says, give me the water so I won't have to come and Jesus says, go and get your husband. I don't think so. I don't think he's changing the subject. It's all about searching for something that will satisfy your thirst. What I think Jesus is saying is, You want to know where to find water that gives you life, that will satisfy your thirst? How has that search been going so far in your life? Where have you been looking for a satisfied life? You've been looking for it in physical, uncommitted relationships. How's that turning out for you? Well, I've had five husbands and I'm on number six. It's not working, is it? Your search is not working. And maybe we could add with the people that we talk to, how is life looking for you now that you've got that corner office, now that you've got the promotion, now that you've got the holiday house and the golf club membership, now that you're retired, how's life looking for you? Is it everything you thought it would be? 
Are you satisfied? Does it make you happy? Well, Jesus says, all of those things are a dry well. There's no satisfaction, there's no life there. Let me show you the type of water that will really satisfy you. So what is this water? Well, the trick is when we read about water in John's Gospel, it stands for God's gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit who gives spiritual life in the same way that water gives physical life. God's Spirit can wash you clean when he forgives your sin, just like water can wash you physically clean. Do you remember back in chapter 3? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. We saw last week that Jesus is really quoting a promise God makes in Ezekiel 36, that God would sprinkle his people clean with water and wash them clean from their sins and put his spirit in them. Spirit equals God's water. A few chapters on, chapter 7, Jesus makes this invitation to the people who are listening. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John explains, by this he meant the spirit. The water God gives is God's Holy Spirit. That's the gift that Jesus wants this woman to know the Spirit of God who will satisfy all her desires for life. God's Spirit who will refresh her and give her an abundant life. Everything else she's tried can't measure up to the gift Jesus offers her. But there's a third thing Jesus wants the Samaritan woman to know. Not just the water, but the experience When God fills people everywhere with his spirit, when he makes them born again, then there's a new experience of worshipping God, a new way of relating to him. If God is in you, if you've drunk in the living water of God's spirit, then you don't need to go to a place to meet God. The Jews would travel to the Jerusalem temple. The Samaritans would go to Mount Gerizim. They had an altar there. But Jesus is saying, when you have the gift of God living in you, it doesn't matter where you are. In verse 21 he says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 23, a time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They're the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. When God's spirit lives in you, it doesn't matter where you are. You can worship God anywhere. He's not just part of your life. He is your life. He is your life. God is everywhere, everything, all the time. That's the sort of worship that Jesus is now talking about. And it transforms your whole life when you know God is with you like that in any circumstance. It enlarges your vision about what Christianity is about. 
Christianity is not attendance at a service or a religious part of your life. It's about every part of your life. We worship God in every part of life because his spirit is with us everywhere. That's got to be one of the best things about being a Christian, isn't it? That God is with us everywhere. If you don't know that, I'd love to talk to you or or talk to Marjorie or or Malcolm or Mavis. Uh, We can help you know these things. Well, that's what Jesus wants this woman to know. Seems like it happens for her. The disciples turn up from... Uh, turn up from town and they've got lunch and that seems to scare her a little bit. She, she heads back to town and when she gets there she, she announces to everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now I can just imagine the, uh, the women in the village, how they might respond to that. Uh, this man told me everything I ever did and maybe they thought, yeah, we all know what you've done too. And then she adds, could this be the Christ? Her knowledge is growing. And the townsfolk follow her back to the well. This is the first evangelist in the Christian church outside Jesus and the, and the disciples. It's hardly the one you'd pick. She doesn't have all the answers, but it seems like she's pretty effective. Verse 39, many Samaritans believe... Jesus stays two more days and even more believe. And in verse 42 the episode concludes. The townsfolk say, we don't just believe because you told us, we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man is the saviour, not just of the Jewish race, we know he's the saviour of the world. Jesus begins, if only you knew And by the end of the chapter, the people know. They do know for sure. And I think her approach is a good one for us to copy. Come and see, she says. Don't just follow me. Don't just take my word for it. I haven't got all the answers. I'm not the one you should follow. But I know someone who does have all the answers. I know someone you should follow. Let me show you what Jesus is like. Well, the final lesson we can learn is to, to view the, way, the world the way Jesus does. The villagers are on their way from town back out to the well. Jesus is busy telling this woman about living water. The disciples are worried about who's already fed Jesus lunch. And Jesus says to them, verse 35, Don't you say four months more and then the, then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The disciples have been into town and they brought nobody back to meet Jesus. They've missed an opportunity because they haven't seen that these townsfolk are ripe for harvest. And that's our world. It's not simply people who are too busy or too satisfied or too knowledgeable or too wealthy, or too good, or too bad for Jesus. Out there is a world of friends, workmates, family members, neighbours who are thirsty, who are longing for something that satisfies. And only the gift of God 
in Jesus can do that. The field is ripe for the harvest. Let's be part of the harvest. Make the most of opportunities with conversations to build bridges with people, to introduce them to Jesus. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for Jesus, uh, the one who offers us living water, who offers us life, refreshment, forgiveness, satisfaction. We pray for any who don't know that, Help them to trust Jesus. Amen.